Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14, Gospel according to Mark chapter 14, reading at verse 43. The background to this, of course, is Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane that we looked at last Sunday, and his going and praying and coming back and going and praying and coming back, finding the disciples sleeping their highs very heavy, and uh, he then tells them to rise and be going. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they, meaning the disciples, all left him and fled. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As we read Mark's Gospel, we're doing what all the ancient writers and authors did— When they were handling the Gospels, they dealt with the Gospels as a whole. That is, they harmonized, they sought to harmonize the various accounts that are given to us by all four Gospels. Each illumines the other, and that's what we've been trying to do. And all four Gospels tell us that it was immediately after Jesus' sustained period of prayer in Gethsemane that events as, as a, at large were brought to a head by the arrival of Judas and an armed group of soldiers. We read last week, uh, at the end of the previous paragraph, that it was Jesus himself who, f- who facilitated this arrest. In verse 41, it is enough, he says. The hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. Now notice that Jesus tells his disciples to rise. Notice that he goes on to say, let us be going, and go they all will, though they will go in different directions. The disciples will rouse themselves from their slumber, having not heeded Jesus' warning to watch And pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as such, having not prayed that prayer, they will, all of them, fall into temptation. The shepherd will be struck, and all the disciples will forsake him and flee. On the other hand, Jesus has settled the matter in his own mind. He's wrestled in prayer. He's determined as a man 
that He will act for us, on behalf of us, for our salvation. He goes with His eyes wide open. See, my betrayer is at hand. He has foretold the betrayal. He's not surprised by it. And he's warned of the consequences for the one who would betray him. Mark chapter 14, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Or Luke's account, for the Son of Man goes as it, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You notice both of those references refer to two things. What's going to happen is because it's been written on the one hand. On the other hand, what's going to happen is going to happen because it's been determined on the other. What was written in the Holy Scriptures that was going to happen has been determined by Jesus in his prayer time that he will go and finish the job that God has given him to do. Jesus is determined to go to his passion and death as an act of his own free will as a human being to fulfill what was written of him in the Scripture. Judas also has exercised his will. His is a fallen will, of course, and his choices are going to precipitate events beyond his own control which will fulfill biblical prophecy. Both choices lead to Jesus' passion and death and resurrection. When the whole focus and trajectory of Old Testament teaching and prophecy will reach its conclusion, nothing can stop the unfolding plan of God for our salvation. Well, at a human level, it's been about two hours that have passed since Judas had slipped out of that upper room, leaving the others to enjoy the Lord's Supper and to have the teaching, that seminar that Jesus gave them that you can read about in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. And then Jesus had prayed a prayer, a long prayer that we have in John chapter 17. Meanwhile, Judas has gone to the high priests and persuaded them that they must act immediately. There's urgency. If they're going to get Jesus and they're going to fulfill this uh, agreement that they've made with one another, then they need to act immediately. And so they did. They brought this large mob of armed men with them, comprising their own servants comprising the temple police and a contingent of Roman soldiers, fully armed, from the garrison at the Tower of Antonia and under the command of their tri tribune. And now they're out looking. Who are they looking for? They're looking for one who would be shortly deserted and defenseless, while these soldiers are armed to the teeth with swords, and the mobs with their sticks, their bludgeons. They're going to seize one who would never fight back. They're going to seize one 
who would make no effort to hide from them. But they brought their torches anyway. They knew that on the western side of the Mount of Olives there were trees and tombs and caves and they might have to do a search for him. They must have been very surprised to turn the corner and there he is. There he is before them. Matthew, in his account, reports this. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. At this they arrested him. We read in Mark Matthew that they came up and they laid their hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus' people have often found themselves following Peter's example thinking out of their lack of wisdom that they can pursue Jesus' agenda while acting like the world. The mob who came with their high priests and the disciple who came carrying the sword, both of them, Peter and these these officers of the temple, both of them misunderstanding the very nature of Jesus' mission and his kingdom. They were thinking of it as a worldly kingdom that can be extended by worldly means. I mean, in the history of the church, 2,000 years the church has been around, there have been periods, points of time when the church has gone about its missionary enterprise the wrong way. By thinking if it went somewhere and massacred people, they would all convert to Christianity. Now, these might be outliers that did that kind of thing, but people did it anyway. Or that the church can be defended by worldly means. We read in Matthew's account, Then Jesus said to him, Peter, put up your sword, put it back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. Your puny little sword is an irrelevance. If I needed help, I'd ask for it. And it would be awesome and would obliterate planet Earth. The Apostle Paul reminds us that there's no place for physical violence in the interests of the gospel. The apostle says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not material, they're not physical. They don't belong to this side of the sun. Rather, they are mighty under God to the pulling down of evil strongholds. Or in the language of Zechariah the prophet, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the way things get done. Peter's sword-wielding action is immediately rebuked by Jesus. 
The injured man's ear is healed, stuck back on, not with glue, but by a miracle. You see, his action was not according to Scripture. But conversely, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the death, the resurrection of Jesus were according to Scripture. Therefore, Jesus says, it must be so. He must be betrayed. He must be arrested. He must be tried. He must be convicted. He must be crucified. And then rise from the dead. Peter, on the other hand, Peter had forgotten what he, what he had confessed recently in the book of Mark. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus had said, who do men say that I am? And it was Peter that gave the right answer. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God was absolutely right. What Peter was thinking about when he heard the word Christ, or used the word Christ, rather, may have been entirely different from what Jesus meant, which is why Jesus explained and expounded what Christ meant. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That was Jesus' view of what it meant to be Messiah. It was not the popular view in Judaism, but that was Jesus' view. And Peter is now acting in the same way, in the same role that he acted when Jesus first told him that he was going to die and be buried, he had said to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. I mean, it's contradiction in terms. So I'm saying, God forbid it, God. This shall never happen to you. And when Jesus rebuked him there, and now here, when he tells him to sheathe his sword, he's reminding him of that earlier rebuke, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not on the side of God. You're on the side of men. Now, this is so precisely what Satan himself attempted to do when he urged Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. When he suggested to Jesus that a moment's worship of the devil would earn him all the kingdoms and the tribes and the peoples of the world. Jesus is telling Peter what he told the devil, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And to the crowds with their clubs and their weapons, Jesus says, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Luke tells us that he said something else. In addition, this is your hour and the power of darkness. One scholar has put it like this, the hour of the power of darkness is that time when those prophetic scriptural passages concerning Jesus will now be fulfilled. At this point, Jesus' disciples forsake him and flee while the crowd seizes him and leads him off to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And from this point, Jesus fulfills Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. 
So that's basically what this little phrase, this little passage tells us. The arrest is complete. But the sermon isn't. We're going to ask a question now. The question is, how did all this come about? How did it come to pass? How do we get from the garden to the governor to the grave? There are three main steps in the process that reflect on the kind of juridical process that was going on. There was a strategy meeting behind closed doors, a hearing in the middle of the night before the Sanhedrin, and then a trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. We're only going to look at the first one of those today. The temple authorities, you see, seem to have been generally indifferent to Jesus. That's due to the fact that he largely stayed away from Jerusalem. If he came into Jerusalem earlier in his ministry, he would come in as, a, as, as an unknown. He would put his hoodie up, and, and he would come into the city so no one could recognize him. And he would walk around the city then. He kept himself largely in Galilee. Galilee was, Galilee was a despised region. It was, people were all mixed up racially there, intermarriage, Gentiles, Jews, and anything else you could find was in Galilee. It was a despised area by the, the people in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if you lived in Jerusalem, you couldn't imagine anything outside of Jerusalem and its environs. A bit like Londoners. If you live north of North, uh, Watford Gap, which is not many miles from the city center, but Anything that's above that is just the rest, the great unwashed. If you're a Londoner, that's a different thing altogether. I think the people in Jerusalem probably thought a bit like that. They were from Jerusalem, and everybody else was looked down on. So Jesus was operating in Galilee, and the rumor was that he was from Nazareth in Galilee. They just assumed that he was born there. And the Bible had nothing, no prophecy, not one word of prophecy about Nazareth and Galilee, so therefore they felt that he wasn't really a threat to them. Until he was. It all began in Palm Sunday when he came riding down the hill towards the city like a king on a donkey being hailed by his followers as the Messiah and if you listen carefully to them as more than simply the Messiah. Suddenly he was the center of interest, the subject of gossip. And when he arrived in the city, what does he do? First thing he does, goes to the temple. This time, not with his hoodie up, now in full recognizable flesh, he enters the temple. Not only that, he makes a whip and he whips those who are abusing the temple. He creates a, what we say in Ireland, a rami. It was a, 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 big, a big event. It got up the noses of the, the temple authorities. 
Because when they heard his words, not only when the cleanup job that he did, but the words he spoke seemed to indicate the end of the temple altogether. A radical change in worship, contrary to the ordinances established by the laws of Moses. His teaching in the temple appeared to claim an authority above that of the priestly class. It seemed that he was directing the hopes of the people to a Messiah who was utterly different than the one they were expecting. His claims for himself seemed to threaten Israel's monotheism. He was making himself the Son of God, which they understood to mean the same as God. And add to that his actions, his teaching, and his miracles that he performed publicly, and to great multitudes. He represented to these authorities a perfect storm that threatened their jobs, threatened their temple, threatened their country, threatened their people. Now, these events and Jesus' presence coincided with the Feast of the Passover. Multitudes of pilgrims poured into the city and the surrounding towns for the celebration. When you add those additional people and you think of the excited pilgrims talking, overhearing talk of messianic hope, the effect of incited fervor and anticipation and zeal could very easily spill over into political dynamite. If you've been watching what's going on in France, as the country seems to be falling apart with violence and riots, and we've known our own form of it here. For Whatever, however, whatever the motivation is, we're not talking about motivation, but the fact, we, we know what it looks like. And it fell then to the clerical hierarchy, as the temple authorities, to take responsibility and to do what they do best, to do what people in power do best, to handle the situation, to handle it. It's the Apostle John who tells us about this emergency secret session of the Sanhedrin that had met a few weeks back to discuss the Jesus problem and how to solve it. John tells us it was prompted by the raising of Lazarus in the village of Bethany, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, that sparked a popular movement. I mean, people from Jerusalem were going on day trips. It didn't take them long, under an hour to walk up the hill of the Mount of Olives and over to Bethany. They went there to stare at this man who'd been dead and now is alive again. He'd been dead for four days. He'd been in the grave for four days. And now here he was alive, walking around and looking perky. Chief priests and the Pharisees were the two leading players in the temple. They disagreed with a lot of things. 
They were opposed to one another normally, but they were brought together on common ground here. They said to one another, the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place, that's the temple, the holy place of worship, and our nation, and our nation. Somebody suggested their motive for acting against Jesus was a political concern shared by this priestly aristocracy and the Pharisees, although they arrived at it from different starting points. Yet this political interpretation of the figure of Jesus and his ministry caused them to miss completely what was most characteristic and new about Jesus. He would establish his authority. He was going to be the king. He was going to be the king over two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the church, the kingdoms of this world. He makes clear authoritative demands of the kingdoms of this world, the rulers of this world, that they will care for their subjects, that they will protect their subjects, that that they will look after human beings because human beings matter to him. That's the role of the powers that be. But then the other kingdom is the church. In Jesus' day, there was a convergence of these two things. Religion and politics shared the same space. The temple, the holy place, the holy city, and the holy people were not purely religious in those days. They're all mixed up in a political movement. It should not have been like that. The care of God's house and God's people is a religious matter. It needs overseers of your soul, not perfunctory performers of the state. Well, within this interplay then of religious and political is another factor that is the specific factor of this man Caiaphas and his Dynasty or dynasty, get it right. Uh, the power interest of, of the dynasty of this high priest. In the end, it would be that dynasty that would bring an end to the temple and the nation. They would be the ones whose ambition and power lust led to the catastrophe of A.D. 70 when the Romans came in, destroyed the place, scattering the people. All that is very much in the future, 40 years in the future. But Jesus confronts head-on their self-serving abuse of the sacred place. He does that when he cleans the temple. In the words of a prophecy and in the prophetic action of cleaning the temple, He points them to the end of the old cult and the old temple. He points them forward to a new time with a new worship in spirit and in truth. The stone temple will be pulled down so that a new covenant with new worship may begin. Jesus himself must die so that after his resurrection he becomes our holy temple. Ultimately, the separation of politics and faith, God's people and worldly powers, was only possible because of the cross. 
only through the total loss of all external power, through the radical stripping away that led to the cross, the stripping away of Jesus' power, the stripping away of his ability to act for himself, the stripping away of his freedom, the stripping away of his clothes, the utter shaming and rejection of Jesus would bring entirely new thing into being. And it's only as you and I trust in Him, trust in Jesus crucified as the crucified one, the one who was despised and rejected and who is now exalted, only when you come to trust in Him does this new society, the church, be born and God's dominion is exercised in a new way. <clears throat> well, back to that meeting. That covert meeting of the Sanhedrin was in the providence of God going to facilitate this new thing. In fact, Caiaphas, in his role as the high priest, will be the vehicle of God's will being done on earth as it's done in heaven. The account of the meeting, I've told you, is in John 11. The feelings were running high uh, following the raising of Lazarus. It happened publicly. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes who belonged to the Pharisee party, were getting agitated at the numbers of people who were going to see the man who once was dead. And here's what they said. What are we to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And it was then that Caiaphas, who was high priest that fateful year, said to them, you know nothing, nothing at all. You don't understand. It is better, better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation should perish. John tells us that the high priest prophesied that year. He prophesied in his office, not in his person. He prophesied unconsciously by the action of the Holy Spirit within him, not of his own choice. See what the high priest's pronouncement did. First of all, for these people who were with him in that, that secret convention, he cleared their minds, it calmed their consciences, especially those who would have been uneasy about the idea of a death, a death sentence for Jesus. Those people needed a theological argument that put their minds and their consciences at rest we all, we all want to, the, often Christian people want a theological argument that gives them the right to do what they want to do. The high priest's pronouncement gave these people that. With the authority of his office, he dispelled their doubts. He steeled their resolve to dispose of Jesus. The die was cast, and the insight from John's gospel stands as a warning to the church Matthew quotes Jesus. 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Because they do that, practice and observe whatever they tell you. But not what they do. Not what they do. In other words, there was going to be a disjunction between the authority of office and the manner of life, between what they say and what they do. We have embarrassing examples of this within the Reformed community in North America. There are systematic theologies from men whose systematic theology is almost perfection. But those same men in those same systematic theologies offer an argument for chattel slavery. And they undo because they're defending their own practice. They undo what they say in the systematic theology. Systematic theology is right. I happen to refuse as a matter of conscience reading them. In my eyes, they've shot themselves in the foot. And they're not worth, worthy of being read. Well, that's the point that he's making. A man can be right in the pulpit. He can be saying the right things, but his manner of life can be as far away from what he's saying as it's possible to get. Well, Caiaphas's argument would have been perceived as pragmatic and reasonable. The sacrifice of one to secure the preservation of many. But there's another thing in his pronouncement. An unintended consequence, which the Apostle John picks up on in John chapter 11, verse 51. Here's what John writes. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but to gather into one all the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see what John's telling us? When we read Caiaphas's findings, finding, and we read it through the lens of Jesus' own words, we see that although Caiaphas may be advocating political expediency, Jesus was going to do something that was far greater than anybody could imagine. Jesus had said earlier in Mark 10, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Caiaphas could not have imagined in a million years that killing Jesus would lead to the salvation of the world. That killing Jesus would accomplish more than simply the salvation of Israel, but the salvation of the new Israel, the Israel of God, into which every person who believes in Jesus, wherever they live in the world, at whatever time in history, are enfolded in the Israel of God. Caiaphas in his clever finding, 
articulates the mystery of vicarious atonement. The word vicarious, vicar, we're familiar with the word vicar, means in place of as a substitute for uh, uh, someone else. Vicarious atonement is one of those doctrines that we preach, which is preached by the whole church. There are no, there are no boundaries. So East, West, Protestant, Catholic, even evangelicals preach vicarious atonement. It's this. One dies as a substitute and representative for others. The judgment due to one person is offloaded onto the shoulders of another. In fact, the history of religions, when you study the world religions, is a search for one who is truly worthy and able to stand in for us, to take us up into himself, to lead us to salvation. Great example in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, is Moses. After Israel, you remember, received the Ten Commandments, the first thing they did was, though the first commandments told them not to create graven images, they created graven images. And Moses pleads with God, he pleads with God, he says to God, if now you will forgive their sin, please do that. But if not, blot me. I beg you, out of that book that you have written. Blot me out. Save them. Blot me out. And for the rest of his life, Moses remains the substitute. The one who bears the fate of the people, though pleading for them in their place over and over and over and over again. And eventually it's Moses Moses dies outside the promised land. He dies outside the promised land. And Jesus, of whom Moses is a type, dies outside the gate so that we might enter the promised land and ultimately New Jerusalem. That's vicarious atonement. In Isaiah, we read about the suffering servant of the Lord, who's despised and rejected by men, who bears the guilt of many, and who justifies the many. The servant prepares us to understand the work of Christ. Christ died in our place. He took the penalty due to us. He bears it himself. He goes alone before God on our behalf. And he does so as the Passover lamb that the wrath of God might fly over our heads, that we might be redeemed and that we might come to know God. Maybe you need to know about the vicarious sacrifice this morning. The one who's good enough to take your place. The one 
who's willing to take your place, the one who's willing to bear your guilt and your shame and your need on your behalf in return for eternal life, the hope of glory, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today as you've been teaching us that you would reach our hearts with your word that might just not fly over our heads, but that it may take root in our hearts and give us great joy and peace in believing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. the Sursum Corda that you'll find in your bulletin. <clears throat> the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord God. It is right and thanks and It is right and good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God. Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Amen. Please be seated. And we're reminded uh, by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10 of the presence of Christ with us and signified to us through the body 
and blood of Christ. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We invite all who have been baptized into the triune name and are in good standing with their own church to join us as we come before God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to this hallowed moment. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who makes Christ and his presence real to us. We thank you that our Lord Jesus has promised his real presence here when he tells us, take my bread, this bread that is my flesh, this cup that is my blood. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings that reality home to us. That reminds us that here as we gather, we come to eat and drink with God. He's the one who invites us. He's the one who's here among us. We pray that we'd be sensitive to that, aware of that in our thoughts and in our hearts. We pray that you would cleanse the thoughts of our minds. And we pray that you would raise us from the weakness of our own flesh to grasp these heavenly things that we might be fed by bread from heaven and that we might drink that which cleanses, renews, and strengthens us from our Savior, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.